I'm Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Chapter 18 Dream World. Chapter 18, Part 3, Dream World. 48 years is a very long time to be lied to. However, as soon as I knew the truth, I started to breathe differently. The shock attacking my nerves and throwing me into this physical illness was like a stepping stone to make sense of my life. It began a very long, arduous process. It also took having someone who was willing to listen and to accept the process that I had to go through. During the time I was healing from the yaws, Jared and I began to make our mornings a time to have lengthy conversations. Perhaps initially, (laughs) they were more one-way conversations where I could talk, think aloud, and express my feelings and even cry. 
it was a space where I knew that I wouldn't be criticized or feel like I was making a mistake or doing anything wrong. It takes years to change your mind if you think that something is a certain way. The very idea of the truth helped me erase the tape that was playing in my mind, telling me that Maury was my father. Slowly but surely, the new thoughts that he indeed was not my father became my new thought pattern. As I began to trust myself more, that information took hold and was woven into the fiber of my being. With Jared, I had a person who was willing to listen and let me discover my own truth. He did this daily, and this has continued to be something that we do with very few exceptions. My feelings of betrayal and whatever anger I had felt until then really became clear to me. Since I had never been good at expressing these feelings, I had to work through it. Maybe it was just the environment that I was living in, which meant that I had to learn to become very mindful. Mother Nature had her way with me. I could certainly relate to Henry David Thoreau dropping out and living on Walden Pond, communing with nature to write his book, Civil Disobedience. I could never walk barefoot in my house, or I might step on a centipede. And I had to open a door quickly to leave or enter the house so that the mosquitoes wouldn't consume me. Going on long walks with Jared helped me build my endurance. Kohala is the windiest place on the Big Island, where windmills were built to make use of this alternative energy source. We would go walking on an airstrip right near a cliff that was a good hundred or more feet above the ocean with winds like you couldn't believe. This area was very sacred, the site of a heiau, the birthplace of Kamehameha I, the king of Hawaii. Just being in the elements and going for walks was extremely challenging. The dirt roads were sometimes rutted from the carts that had traveled through to the sugar plantations, and when the rains came, there were big mud puddles. Traversing these very rustic and rocky trails and road pathways, I still chose to walk in my platform cork sandals that wrapped around my ankles. <laughs> they were my fashion statement, along with these tall Japanese woodblock shoes I'd march around in. Sometimes we'd have to climb over a cattle gate. Eventually, we would reach a spot where the land was all dry and kiave trees grew. The trees have thorns in them, and you couldn't wear flip-flops because if you stepped on one of those thorns, it would shoot right through the bottom. My platforms actually were very practical in that respect. The ocean was so clear where you could see pools of angelfish and sometimes whales not too far off the shore doing breaches. It was all very wild and untamed. The old Hawaii that the resorts or industry had not invaded and the people cherished and wanted to preserve. A very special place on this planet and it was my special place to begin to purify and to cleanse. Intermingling my tears with the ocean, juxtaposition to swimming in the shame of my mother's womb was an extremely important part of my healing. 
Letting the ocean rock me gently fulfilled the need in me to nurture my own inner child. Every time I would go to the ocean, I would call it church. And so in Hawaii, Jared and I made Sundays our day to go to church. We would leave around 8.30 in the morning and wouldn't return home until sunset. Living at the elevation that we did, the ocean was our place to dry out from the week's rain. I had visited the waters of Hawaii many times before starting in the mid-70s, but was never confident going in because I wasn't a strong swimmer. Now that I was living there, I had to make friends with the ocean. When we would go to the beach in the beginning, Jared would run toward the water and jump in carefree, swimming out, and then he'd kind of egg me on to come and join him. Fortunately, I was never intimidated by that, so I would stay where I felt safe. I want to say that I held on to my own truth, but it was my fears as well that kept me from moving too far from the shore. The truth is that I wasn't proud that the ocean scared me. The thought of being in the water that sharks inhabited just completely terrified me. A couple of months after we had moved from the mainland, our friends Kindy and Sherry came over for dinner. <laughs> Here I am, a newbie, and Kindy was born in a canyon at the end of the road and grew up, as did many generations of his family, on the ocean, fearless. Kindy began to tell me a story. A friend of his was doing her daily swim, not too far from the shore, when she came out of the water and noticed that she had all these burns on her leg. She had told him that a shark was swimming next to her and kept bumping into her. <laughs> she just kept swimming. Kindy then told me, Now, when you're at the ocean and you see the trees near the shore with white blossoms, you know it's shark season. That was my introduction. It didn't instill fear in me. And he was trying to teach me, not scare me, because I already had fear of sharks being in those waters. Nevertheless, hearing it from a living legend and a Hawaiian native gave it authenticity. The progression of making friends with the ocean was slow, and I really did not want to be intimidated with this fear that I had to deal with. I'd just be content sitting on the shore and let the waves slap over me and be like a child. I was okay with that and could do it for hours. Do you know how long you can hang out in the sun if you're sitting in the ocean and the waves come spilling over you? It's amazing! I do have to title myself the chicken of the sea, not to disillusion the beach party fans. I really did surprise myself, though. Year after year, I kept going deeper and deeper into the water. When I saw that the tide was really far out, I would take advantage of that and just walk way out until I started floating. To this day, wherever I am, when I look at the ocean, I love it and know that it's very therapeutic. But I know that when I put my foot in the water, I'm a guest. Our time at the ocean was a quiet time. Sometimes Jared would go on long walks and I'd be left alone. If you're present in the moment, you really do have what I would describe as a holy experience, feeling like you're spiritually connected and communing with the sand and the water. The sand on the beach rested on black lava rocks, 
lava that had flowed from the volcano to the ocean. There were little sinkholes, and when you'd step into one, you were standing in freezing cold, unsalted, underground spring water that finds its way to the ocean. These are extremely healing waters, and this is when nature really talks to you. When you're walking in the sand and all of a sudden your foot sinks into freezing cold water that isn't salty, next to black lava and in the distance, there is the mountain that it came from over 200 years ago when the volcano erupted. Essentially, our time by the ocean once a week would be very rejuvenating. I still have a tremendous need to be by the water. I think that's such an evocative reading, Donna, this idea for people who have perhaps not visited Hawaii, just the importance of being by the ocean and that sacred experience that I think is part of the Hawaiian culture, but as well for many people who enjoy being by the ocean, enjoy being in the ocean. And I think what you talk about is this whole idea of the healing powers of water at a time when you needed it, that you'd gone from having uh, the need to be very still, as we spoke about in previous episodes after you found out that Maury was not your father, to now being uh, to move, to move more, to be mindful and to engage in in some sort of physical activity. Mm, That's so lovely, honey. Oh, you know, (laughs) the first thing I think about is that we're all almost, what, 78, 80% of saline solution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and where where we uh, are birthed, you know, we we come from uh, that that same kind of fluidity. Mm -hmm. And so, but then again, you know, I'm... I'm a Pisces, and so you know, <laughs> I, it just gives me that extra yearning um, mm. for water in all different ways. But it, it, this was such an extreme experience mm. of recovering from a lie that I lived with for so long. And the idea that the vastness of the ocean was accepting my all my complex feelings Mm. and kind of in a very interesting way because there's you know when you stay by the shore there's a rhythm there's a rhythm of the wave and and uh it's i guess in a in a way it lulls you in you know to um feeling relaxed and maybe trusting the waters unless mm. unless it's a rough day but <laughs> generally it wasn't it was, it was very gentle waves and um yeah it was just something that eased me into this whole new dimension of living in my truth mm. Mm. and thinking about that thinking about this idea for so many people who go and spend a day you know, on the beach, my, my, um, one of my friends is very into the beach. And when we went away earlier this year, we spent a lot of time at the beach and I wasn't usually that kind of person, but then I realized the way that you can just be there all day and, 
you know, you go into the water for a while, you come out for a while, you sit on the sand, maybe you walk to a, we walked to an island through the water because there was oh. one there and yeah, and there were, it was full of, um, well, I guess it was full of seagulls. So, but um, just this, this idea of being somewhere where there is that constancy of the tides and the waves and that idea that there's, there's something bigger than us and more expansive than us uh, <laughs> if you just surrender to to that and mm. um, I do relate to your fear of the water as well that I'm not necessarily fearful but I'm not confident and so you know here I am at what age was I then I was near 40 at that point that was only earlier this year and mm-hmm. asking my friends how do you float I don't think I actually know how to do this and they showed me how to do it oh my goodness well see it's never too late it's never too late so <laughs> <But> <laughs> I look forward to doing that again but... yeah it's such a beautiful feeling when you can as you say surrender and um maybe that fear you know, whatever fear you have doesn't attract something that, you know, would cause you harm. Mm. But um, I wonder if I told this story, I'm not sure. One day, there had been quite a storm. Mm. And there were 12 foot waves that shifted the coastline. Mm. And um, when Jared and I went walking along the, (laughs) the new beach, (laughs) Uh, there were all these tide pools and um in hawaii my hair was very long and very thick and very curly Mm. and um yeah i'd always have to get it wet before Mm. i could you know put a brush or a comb through it so i decided to take advantage of these tide pools and i brought a a brush along with me (laughs) (laughs) And I walked about 15 feet into the ocean and, and all these tide pools, you know, were kind of created by the storm. So I kind of just submerged myself in one of them and wet my hair and started brushing. And, and I felt this object that was about mm, maybe between 18 and 24 inches, something like that, uh, in length, um, kind of graze against my ankle. Mm. And, and, but it was very, very fast. Mm. And I thought, well, I knew of, of the famous fish in Hawaii, the homo homo nuku nuku apu a'a, that was about that size. And <laughs> it's part of a song, you know. Try saying that twice. <laughs> and I, you know, so I thought, well, maybe it's that that just swam by. And, but I thought, well, I'm not sure what it is. Mm. So I decided to get up and go to the edge of the shore. And as I got out and just stood there and looked out at the ocean, a wave came and a turtle that was about that size was spread eagle <laughs> in that wave as if to say, you were kissed by a turtle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so, you know, I had various experiences like that in, uh, in Hawaii. And um, I don't know. I think it's kind of unique in mm-hmm. certain bays, you know, depending on 
uh, the kind of sea creatures that live there and, uh, and that are, they're kind of curious, you know, it's like, well, wait a minute, who are you? And what are you? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, then there was the time when the helicopters from the civil service started circling the bay closest mm. to me. And, um, we were notified that a 25 foot white shark mother was mm-hmm. giving birth offshore Tremendous. about a hundred feet mm. offshore. And, and then tiger sharks, about a half a dozen tiger sharks were um, in that same lagoon area. Mm. And they were also mother sharks giving birth. Wow. So for 10 days, we were, we were told not to enter the water. Mm-hmm. and um and and we saw the helicopters you know just you know constantly patrolling the area and then finally the 10th day came and we were told okay you know now they're gone mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. the waters are free for you to re-enter and it was so awesome mm-hmm. to step foot back into the ocean just knowing who had been there yeah yeah. <laughs> and and just to make things a little bit more interesting, as I was walking back into the ocean, I saw a black fin. Oh dear. Oh dear. Like, I know. But, and and it turned out to be a um a manta ray mm. that had flipped the side of its wing up and it looked like the <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean they're they're friendly to humans so yeah, um yeah. but you know they're quite large and and they were patrolling the shore i guess once once people uh, you know are not in the ocean and the ocean is left to you know yeah, who yeah. lives there and who are the natural inhabitants um you know it's a free for all so <laughs> well yeah absolutely when we we sort of get out the way then it's yeah it's I, I think it's just, it's quite impressive and just the, the amount of life and appreciation, I think, that more and more people are are getting and this, this realisation that it's, it's not one or the other. It's not us being able to have a beach and nothing being in it. It's, it's you know, it's um, a whole system that we're mm. interconnected with. And, oh, you know, yes. You know, completely evocative. And, and, you know, as part of this as well, as you were talking, that, that idea, I think, you know, leading up to this revelation, there was there was a lot of changes that you had. There were uh, the changes in location, of course, but there were also even changes in relationships. And you know, I'm even thinking when you were in Hawaii and you found out that you know, yes, it was your teenage boyfriend, but your teenage boyfriend, it, you know, came up what you know, <laughs> that he was not being entirely, you know, faithful all those years ago. It almost seemed like what was happening is you had to shed a lot of the past and relationships in preparation of, of this revelation. And then having someone like Jared there as part of a new life or attracting people or energy that would take you into this new truth. Ah, mm. oh, yes. Yes. Jared, uh, you know, and I practice, you know, an awareness mm. to, to allow more space 
mm. you know, within ourselves, within our, you know, our essence to, mm. you know, make room for, for new. And, um, and once I started discovering, you know, the past fills you up mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and you, you really don't have the capacity to, um, to grow. It's kind of stifles your growth. Mm. And, and so, but, but emotions rule, you know, and yes, <laughs> they, you know, sometimes even a bitter memory, mm. you know, is, can be seen as sacred and something that you hold on to. Mm. Um, but, you know, little by little by little, and even now, you know, I still, I still think that, you know, if, if you have a memory that is so precious, but it's, but it's in the form of um, occupying your mind in a, mm. not, not in such a healthy way, um, that, you know, there are certain practices of, of, I think maybe we've spoken about this before, but um what whenever you're in the present state of mind if you're on a walk or if you, whatever you're doing that you know you um are just in the now mm. um, can if a thought from the past starts invading and takes over um with some awareness you can be you know you can observe it you know, you can first you feel it because, mm. you know, you take this deep dive way back when. Mm. <laughs> and But if you can be there and realize, wait a minute, I have to step back. I have to look at it. So mm. I'll observe it. I'm not going to forget the feeling, but I'm not going to let it take up space in me. Mm. I mm. want to I want to leave space for the new. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy it's it's a constant constant practice uh, because the more you do it the, the quicker your awareness kicks in that you you kind of get stuck in that old loop mm-hmm. you know or or actually conversely you might start worrying about the future yeah yeah absolutely and you know, I think so much of what everyone's been through in the last couple of years has been either lots of worry about the future or even, yeah, sort of ruminating a, a, a about things that have happened. And, you know, I, I think that physicality of doing things is so important um, as part of that ability to to be in the present. Because like you said, I think it's very easy to, um, even a bad memory where you, you, you think you don't want to hold on to it, sometimes you do and you kind of um without realizing it you you keep giving that fire more more energy um Mm -hmm. yeah which which because i I don't know whether it gives you you know it 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 means that perhaps you haven't worked through it and that's fair enough but maybe it also sometimes can give people a bit of an identity as well you know what's Mm. happened to them can form who they are and how did I, I guess leading on from that, and I know we'll we'll talk more about this as as this episode un, uh, as the episodes unfold. But how how did you allow yourself not to what this revelation, this big revelation? How did you allow that not to become a very big part of identity for you? 
well, you know, I just think he, like they say, the truth shall set you free. Mm. <laughs> and and uh, it's definitely a process. Mm. Um, I, I feel incredibly fortunate that I was led to uh, be with someone, uh, you know, that was honest and I could and trustworthy and and then in a place that was so embracing um mm-hmm. and you know it was a gentle <laughs> i could have been in a city hearing sirens and honking all the time you know <laughs> and, and have to get through that chaos and it might, i maybe i wouldn't have been able to get through it i don't know mm-hmm. but i but that's not what the good lord had in mind for me mm-hmm. you know i was able to i just you know i was guided to to be in a place where i could begin my healing and that has and to be with someone that i could heal uh with and to be supported (laughs) by and it's just you know i i'm extremely grateful for the gifts that that i've received in life and Mm. oh you know (laughs) and and i just i encourage everyone you know to to see to acknowledge the light they have within them and to seek out uh others that are like-minded who Mm. you know they sense the same energy because what I believe is happening that has never happened before after listening to a lot of very wise people talk about the, these times, that there's a synergy that has never been recorded in, you know, in history, in caves, in, <laughs> you know, <laughs> going back as far as anyone could, you know, any scientist could ever uh, research um, to have this time in, in on this planet of such extremes that we can identify toxic behavior mm. in so many ways so many ways uh you know we could have a discussion about that but it's so extreme now mm. you know that that you you either um you have the choice you just yeah. have you know each one of us has the choice to go in to our hearts and feel, you know, who we are and do we come from a place of love or do we come from a place of fear? Mm. And with all of the suggestions of fear, with all the suggestions of love, you know, can, can each one of us in our own way can purify ourselves to the point where our hearts are open and we live in more of a loving state mm. rather than having to struggle, you know, in, in a state of fear. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's becoming more and more apparent that that's, that's kind of the choice ultimately, isn't it? More and more it's about which one do we want to do and not that that's a, an easy process, but it's, um, I think, keeping that at the heart of everything for sure yes and you know leading into love Mm. um my dear friend todd hughes you know um and and um and his beloved have 
you know, just ridden this wave of the flow into life where life takes you and trusting, you know, that it's exactly where you need to be and what you're going to be doing. So, you know, Todd, being a filmmaker, has now chosen to write his first book. And, ah, it's such a, it's so gorgeous that I can't even stand to finish it. <laughs> I, I don't want to close the book. I just I want to keep that ending as a mystery. But um, I, and... I did finish it. I, I was greedy and, and got to the end. Um... <laughs> You're braver than I am. <laughs> well, it's, uh, um, you know, our listeners would remember last time uh, Todd's partner, David, uh, came on to speak about his book. 99 miles from LA. Yes, 99 miles from LA. And that was the book noir, I guess. And uh, Todd has done something similar where his book is, is, a, is, a, is a memoir, but it's also a memoir of a relationship he had with a film noir queen um, from the 1940s and 50s. Elizabeth um, Scott. Absolutely, Elizabeth Scott, who, who many listeners would, would probably remember because she's quite iconic. And I think the book comes at a time to give her her due because I, I think sometimes, um, you know, some of these people do just fall out of the, the radar. But interestingly, and as we speak about in our conversation with Todd, which we're going to um, go to now, is this idea that even someone like her, who uh, people might see her as from the 1940s and 50s and, and kind of have that image, is that she didn't seem to be someone who lived in the past. She enjoyed her past, I think, but she wasn't living in that past. And I, I think that's a nice little message to dovetail what we've spoken about today. I agree. She was in her power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's another wish that I have for all of us so to, to be in our own empowerment and to know ourselves so well that we can live our lives However we do, however we choose, you know, to um, to have that beautiful experience of of life, you know, in this particular realm and then, um, you know, open our eyes every morning and be grateful that we have another day. Absolutely. And with that, why don't we go have lunch with Elizabeth? Oh, that sounds marvelous. Cheers. Understand. What you're saying is, women are made to be loved. Is that what I'm saying? Yes, it's it's a confession that that a woman may drive you out of your mind, but you wouldn't trust her. And because you couldn't put her in your pocket, you get all mixed up. You're right about women being made for love. Yeah. I can see why Johnny loved you. Welcome back to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. And joining us again is our good friend, writer and filmmaker, Todd Hughes. Last time Todd joined us, it was with his partner and collaborator, P. David Eversole. As David was releasing his debut novel, A Noir Tale of Crime and Intrigue. Well, Todd joins us today to discuss his debut book, a memoir of his relationship with one of the screen's queens of film noir of the 40s and 50s, Elizabeth Scott. Todd, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. We're Welcome calling it a, a, a mem noir. A mem noir. <laughs> Hi, Donna. 
Oh, Todd, it's so wonderful to see you. And I see you, hear you, feel you. <laughs> Likewise. I know. And David as well, please. Long distance hugs and, and smooches. Have you had monsoon down there? It, you know, we had the, some raininess, but that um, hurricane missed us. So oh, thank God. Okay, yeah. Perfect weather. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I guess, oh, gosh, I hate to say this, but I guess we're all getting what we need. <laughs> Unfortunately, the, this planet needs to wake up and, whew, well, and, and you know, take take the right direction. And, and you and David, I, I have to share with Dr. Adam and, and our listeners, you really listen to your heart and your inner voice. And, um, it, you know, maybe it was beginning with David's book, you know, that uh, life became art, art became art reflects life, life reflects art, um, writing his book, and then you literally manifested aspects of it, and um, moved out of the country into a beautiful, beautiful, um, tropical environment in, south of the border, and, uh, of course, uh, uh, shifted into a whole new career out of filmmaking into becoming authors. And it's um, really a brave move on your part. And congratulations. I, I um, have to celebrate with you about your success upon your first release of your beautiful, I, I even, I even have to say it feels like a diary. It's, I'm, I'm just really taken by your, your writing and your, the intimate kind of relationship that that you you drew me into you know? oh thank you so much I'm so happy you liked it <laughs> and and the, the little um things along the way that I related to um when you mentioned a restaurant called Nicodel's mm-hmm. yeah you know, it's like <laughs> Nicodel's uh, the the restaurant that I used to go to sometimes for lunch when I was making beach party movies, you know, and, and, and then another reference, Pat Suzuki. Right. On the same record label. With uh, that uh, on Vic, was it? On Vic. Yeah. And, and Elizabeth um, recorded her album on Vic. She did her one and only album. And it's really mm. good. It's really good. Mm, Cause a lot of people wouldn't know just to take us back. Um, Elizabeth Scott, I think more rightly so, more recently, is getting credit for being probably one of the, not only most iconic, but one of the best of, of the film noir women of the 40s and 50s. But to tell our readers about your book, Lunch with Elizabeth, which uh, came out on September 29th, which was the uh, what would have been Elizabeth's 100th birthday why for your first book which is a memoir of of your life and career but your friendship um with this lady tell us about when you met her and where she was at at that period of time well you know I became obsessed with her when I first saw (laughs) her in a movie when I was living in Paris in 1984 Mm. film called Dead Reckoning with Humphrey Bogart Mm. And she seemed, I couldn't believe I had never heard of her. How could she be obscure when she's in movies with Humphrey Bogart and Robert Mitchum? But, you know, it was pre-internet, so it was really hard to find out anything about her. And the more I did, the more fascinated I became. 
And when I moved to Hollywood in 1986, I knew she was alive and I knew she lived on Hollywood Boulevard. And you know, just one thing led to another. I don't have it in the book, but um, I was on Franklin Avenue going to work at the Border Grill from Hollywood, right by AFI. And there was this horrible traffic jam and I saw a green Jaguar coming closer to me and I was like, <laughs> oh my God. And I looked over and it was her. <laughs> and I was like, I can't believe it. I just landed in Hollywood and here is proof. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And, you know, I wasn't sure it was her until I met her. And then I was like, wow, that is funny, you know. <laughs> but, then, mm. but then eventually I wrote her a fan letter and she invited me out to lunch. And mm. as soon as we met, you know, we were friends until she died. Mm. And I, I guess at this point, because she hadn't made a film for quite a while. The last, I mean, the last film I kind of remember of, of her was the Elvis film, um, Loving You. Had, I don't think she'd made too much more after that. So she kind of hadn't been working for some time, but was still within the industry? You know, no, she retired. Mm. And she did a movie in 1972 with Michael Caine called mm. Paul for Mike Hodges. Michael Caine, Mickey Rooney, Lisbeth Scott, and a particularly good performance from me. Remember the word, pulp. Feel free to tell all your enemies about it. Yours sincerely, Lionel Stander. Run me off 20 million copies of this pitch. When she did TV, you know, through the 60s, but she really outlived her fame, you know, by the time, you know, I was going to college, and studying film noir, mm. her name didn't come up that often. So because when oh, we think of film noir, we think of uh, Lauren Bacall. And well, isn't that funny that they are like hand in hand? They came to Hollywood at almost the same time. They were both discovered by Diana Vreeland. Um, you know, years. <laughs> I love. I loved your initial encounter with her, with Lauren Bacall. Oh right, right. The first star I met is Lauren Bacall, you know, the queen of the movies, the queen no of kidding. Hollywood. Yeah. And she was just such an interesting person. Yes, we, and I don't know whether we should. We'll, we'll leave that one for the book so that, because that's kind of yeah. why it opens your book. And, but it, it was an interesting encounter to, to say, you know, the least. But um, uh, just to, I, I guess, just to go back a bit, you know, you're a filmmaker, of course, as is, as is David. And where did the love of film noir come from? So you were, from your book, you were initially quite taken with French cinema. And I guess that's why you ended up in France. But what was it about film noir for our, for our listeners who are perhaps not, a, not aware of that kind of genre? What was it about that that really took you and led you to focus on Elizabeth? Well, film noir in general was just such a fascinating concept. And, you know, I was learning it from Andrew Saris and Robert Belton and these people who had studied it. And this is 1981. Mm -hmm. And Andrew Saris actually was the person who introduced the concept from the French. It was the French filmmakers who first right. called it film noir, right, mm -hmm. in the 60s, Godard and those people. Mm -hmm. and, but it just represents something really interesting in that movies got a lot more sophisticated 
and they started to become more realistic and deal with problems. But, you know, it's Hollywood, so they infused it with drama. Mm. And whether it was a Western or, um, you know, a crime drama, it was always about this post-war disillusionment that people were feeling. Mm. And, you know, they were willing to go to desperate measures. So ordinary people end up doing really terrible things. And, um, you know, and then also I've never seen actors like Robert Mitchum or Gene Tierney before mm. read it. They worked, right? I was sort of raised on just like what you saw on TV. Mm. But to discover all these people that were just so amazing, Dan Durie and Joan Bennett. But anyway, it's just funny because Elizabeth kind of slipped through the cracks. And um, then when I discovered her, it was something more, right? I, I fell in love with her. Mm. But, um, <laughs> And the way you describe your, the way you describe your, the the heart connection or the, I don't know, the soul connection that you, that you had with her um, and how it evolved, you know. um, Well, it was extraordinary because right at our first meeting, she said, I believe in fate. mm -hmm. And she like immediately we were friends and, um, you know, everything kind of fell into place. And then we discovered that we're both. Triskaidekaphiles, and that is, um, we're lovers <laughs> of the number thirteen. <gasps> and her name, Elizabeth Scott, has thirteen letters. And it's like, is that why you dropped the e? Oh. And, <laughs> you know, she was she was fun because she was not consistent, and she would tell stories different ways. But um, she told me once that she did drop the e from Elizabeth to be Elizabeth Scott because of 13 Mm -hmm. and her favorite aunt that is a nun that she almost followed in her footsteps is born on August 13th, which is my birthday. (laughs) So we had a lot of things like that. And we did have like nights where we both thought about each other and we called the next day. Mm. So we did have a psychic connection. I've got to ask the 13 and what, what is significant about 13 because I've got a recurring and I haven't looked too much into this but in my family and in my life I've got a recurring 25 for some reason it comes up a lot um so what what is 13 well I was born on the 13th Mm. and it's been my lucky number um Friday the 13th is always very lucky for me (laughs) it makes me a it's called a frigatriscadescophile. It's <laughs> a lover of Friday the 13th. In, but um, I must say, when I met her, you know, it was even more reinforced. And there is a book called 13, which mm. I gave her a copy of, which explains why the number 13 is so significant in our culture and why it's considered unlucky. And, you know, it's, it's endlessly fascinating. Mm. And, um, you know, I gave her a copy and, that was one thing we talked about for a while, the merits of 13. Yeah, because you go into an elevator and there's no 13. I know, isn't that crazy? <laughs> does, does the book have that answer? Or does it have a No, 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 but it, it does tell the name of that book that does. Okay. <laughs> okay. We'll dig a little deeper. Well, yeah, because I'm um, when you said with Elizabeth, with Elizabeth um, how... Uh, you know, some of her stories were were kind of, I guess, inconsistent or she had different explanations. Do you think mm-hmm. that was coming from where she had under 
under the studio system and where people were invented to be these particular types of um, characters. And in her case, she was... Uh, well, well, tell us about how was she kind of promoted um, at that time when she was making films in the 40s and the 50s? Well, you know, she started at the top. Mm. So how Wallace was at Warner Brothers, right? He was the one who put Warner Brothers on the map mm. with Betty Davis and Humphrey Bogart. He made all those gritty dramas, but they, you know, he made Casablanca. Mm. And so when the Warner Brothers, when it won Best Picture, the Warner Brothers wouldn't let him accept the Academy Award. He was the producer. They mm. said, it's our studio. And he got fed up and he left and he started his own independent production company. Right. And the first person he signed was Elizabeth Scott. Mm. Footnote, they were flirting and they fell in love pretty quickly. Mm. So, you know, there was more to the offer than just a movie career. But right. he went out on a limb for her. She was a star in her first film. In mm. her second film, she's got her name above the title with Barbara Stanwyck. Mm. And, the, and that was, the, was that the Martha, uh, Martha Ivers? Strange Loves of Martha Ivers. Yeah. And Barbara Stanwyck actually went so far as to serve Hal Wallace with a letter saying, how dare you put your girlfriend <laughs> above the title next mm. to me? He's not a star of our stature. And he wrote back and said, I produced the movie. Mm. And that was that. And, um, you know, they, they ended up being friends, Elizabeth and Barbara. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, not friends, but they were friendly friendly and do you think that was because when you watch some of her films um it's easy sometimes when you don't you you you, you put these people in certain boxes but in her case she had real talent she did and you know it's not like what's extraordinary is that she took it very seriously and she was in new york and you know her first big break was she was Tallulah Bankhead's understudy in the state oh. of our on Broadway I love this it this is with um, Frederick March, another young kid in the company is Montgomery Cliff. Ah, mm. love him. And so, and Tallulah Bankhead never misses a performance <laughs> and is furious that she has an understudy. But, <laughs> but the producer, who also was, um, might have been romantically involved with Elizabeth, put her there to keep her on her guard. Mm. But it is because... For how Wallace this happened twice, someone from his camp happened to be in the audience after Tallulah Bank had left. She was Miriam Hopkins' understudy. But she went on one night for mm. Miriam Hopkins and someone from how Wallace was there and said, oh my God, she's amazing. Who discovered me? My God. I was discovered by Hal Wallace, but before that I was discovered by a Mike Meyerbird, who is the producer of Skin of Our Teeth. And I had a very small part in Skin of Our Teeth on Broadway. Uh, Tallulah Bankhead was the star. And he made me understudy. I'd just done one thing on the road, which was Hell's a Poppin'. I was the actress in Hell's a Poppin' with Billy House and Eddie Gar. It was like the, let's see, like the 19th company. But it was great experience because I... I went to 63 
uh, cities in the United States, and that was quite, quite an experience. Then I came back and I got skin of our teeth. In the meantime, I did summer stock. I modeled for Harper's Bazaar, you know, that sort of thing. And then, you know, Pal Wallace, he did that later. He went to New York to see the pajama game, and Carol Haney was sick, and Shirley MacLaine subbed for her. And he signed her that night and immediately loaned her to Alfred Hitchcock at a different oh. studio for all his money. It's and then, <laughs> you know, he was, they did not have a good relationship. But, you know, she encountered uh, Elizabeth when she got to Hollywood, right? And knew yeah. she was uh, Hal Wallace's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how Tallulah Bankhead made sure probably that she never was going to be missing a performance so that Elizabeth could go on in her place. Right. This one guy started a rumor that uh, All About Eve was based on them, but Ooh. it's not true. Ah, uh-huh. right. So they were they were implying that Elizabeth was kind of the Eve character. Yes. Ah. I have a question um, about Elizabeth and your observation um, because you knew her for what over a decade? Twenty years. Mm. Twenty years. Twenty years. So um, it just strikes me that she kept up a consistent relationship with uh, Hal Wallace. And that would give her a sense of autonomy to um, not be, well, Barbara Stanwyck having to just take it on the chin, you know, I'm the boss, so step back. (laughs) That that gives you a lot of strength. Um, Not that uh, it seems like Elizabeth had a very strong character about her and um and that it could have come from that sense of independence and not a need am i anywhere I think you're right it's funny because you you know i've seen her movies a lot and you start to see these moments where you know how wallace is off camera and you've never seen someone more ecstatically happy right she loved every minute of it mm. Because she could do it, right? She could hold her own with Barbara Stanwyck. She was wonderful mm-hmm. and um, professional. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she said uh, the first time she encountered unprofessionalism was when she worked with Humphrey Bogart in her third film, uh, replacing Rita Hayworth at mm-hmm. a different studio at Columbia. But, um, you know, she said Bogey had it in his contract that he worked nine to five. And that meant he got there at 10 and by noon he had heard his lines and it was lunch. And then at one, they'd get the shot off. And she said she didn't care because she was used to like, let's go. Mm. And um, she, you know, she knew that they were at his, uh, you know, he could do whatever he wanted. Mm-hmm. And do you think, um, cause uh, as, as we've mentioned at the time you, you knew her, her career, had done Sash essentially what what kind of led to that happening was it just like many of these people who burned very brightly and kind of just dissipated or did she make a decision to move out of pictures what was what was the reason you know yeah she did um you know she was under contract to Hal Wallace for a long time Mm. and they broke you know they cut it off because she needed romance in her life so she started dating, and they stayed very close friends. But, um, you know, she just said the movies were getting so mediocre. <laughs> and, 
took it. She loved making films so much. And so it was killing her to have to put all that energy into a film that no one was that excited about. Mm-hmm. And she just said, I'm, you know, I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. And he, Al Wallace also had made her independently wealthy at that point. So she could do whatever she wanted. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what I was going to ask is that when you met her, she was able to do that because she had been made wealthy from those pictures. She said the first time we went out to lunch at Musso and Frank, she picked up the check and she said, good thing I'm rich. I don't know what I'd do if I had to work for a living. Maybe I'd be a gymnast. I'm very limber. <laughs> she was 75. She's a strong woman. And you described her like from the back, she could have been ageless. She had a great figure and she really kept it. And so, you know, she filled out her jeans. Mm. She did not look like an old lady. Mm. But, <laughs> but, you know, she really... and mm. she once almost, can- you know, almost canceled the dinner on us because she had a blemish that we couldn't even see. <laughs> <laughs> but she would say, you know, I'm vain. Forgive me. <laughs> and tell me, and, and please tell our, our listeners about how you would meet every birthday and um, literally she had accumulated a collection from you toward the end. Mm. Well, she um, created a hobby for herself, which was collecting glass animals. Mm. And um, before we got into that, we would, you know, we had kind of interesting gifts we were giving back and forth. She loved to dress me up. And she loved to give me birthday presents that were like sweaters from uh, Ralph Lauren and really preppy stuff. <laughs> but um, me and David started getting her um, glass animals for her menagerie, which she had a huge collection. And we just get whatever was new at Swarovski's and send it to her. But she always sent back like a detailed, like one, two, three page letter about the creature coming into her menagerie. She gives them all voices and behaviors. What an incredible experience having a relationship with someone that, you know, that unique. And I tell you, Todd, I can't finish your book because I don't want it to end. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, it's funny because the story continues. I'm just so excited that... I've been able to tell this story and that people know, enough people know who she is that, you know, it's, it will be of interest. So. Yeah. Well, sweetheart, though, personally, not, not to minimize who you were in love with, but the way you express yourself, the way you, exp- the way you describe your heart and it's, it's like I say, it feels like a diary. I feel like I'm a voyeur in, in experiencing the incredible passion and love that you had for her. And um, if, if this book is any indication of what you've got coming in the future, I can't wait. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. And the um, book is climbing the charts on Amazon already. It's only been out for a few days now. But I think, as you said, Todd, and as you're saying, you know, Donna, this 
this idea that I, I, I think people get excited that they've heard a lot about the, the so-called big stars and there's a lot of that out there. But for fans of film and film noir and, and these sorts of people, for so long there hasn't been a lot. And so to have someone who has researched this person but also who knew her, it adds a dimension of something that I think a lot of fans wouldn't have thought was going to be out there um you talk in your book Todd about this you know in the pre-internet age where you'd where fans of film would you know scour books like Hallowell's Film Goer's Companion which I've still got my copies of those books on my shelf looking for those those little tidbits about an actress or an actor that that you liked and it might just be one sentence and you know or a couple of lines back then and and kind of I think now you know the excitement is yes we have the internet but to have these stories about people who we didn't think we would find out more about her life after she left film I think is a real gift um, for fans. Besides all of the encyclopedic information about films that you know I would never know about Mm. Well, I like that it gave me a chance to do a compendium of a lot of my favorite things, right? Mm. So I talk a lot about film noir and my favorite film noirs and, you know, what led me to Elizabeth and Veronica Lake and all of them. And, you know, it was a travelogue and um, I don't know, it was really fun. And, you know, I actually, there was a whole chapter about, not a chapter, but a Side note about Donna, because I was talking about how important records were to me. Mm. And then when I got to New York, I found just, you know, I wandered into a store and there was an unopened copy of songs from Beach Blanket Bingo, right? (laughs) On Capitol, unopened by Donna Lauren. I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know that existed. (laughs) And it was $60. And I was like, I can't spend that much on a record. That's how much I have for like the week or something. And then I bought it. I bought it. Now I'm talking to Donna right now. Oh, God. It's truly so, so precious to be loved and to express love with you and with David and now to include our dear Dr. Adam in, in our how do you say that? It's not a menage a trois. We have to add a fourth. <laughs> a fourth, I'm not sure. <laughs> a 4 oh, okay. Good. A 4 a 4G. <laughs> That's so Hollywood. <laughs> That's the other thing, isn't it, that Donna, I, I don't know about you, but when, you, when you're reading um, Todd's book about mentions of like Musso and Franks or, you know, Nicodell, these, these restaurants, these places, that are that are very Los Angeles. I think I think even Donna was your was one of your vocal teachers, Harriet Lee. Yes, that was another coincidence. Unbelievable. I mean, but she was. She, I sought Harriet Lee out after I was married, and I just had my second child, and I I thought, well, I I would like to uh, exercise my vocal cords a little bit because I was full-time you know mother and and housewife at at that point and uh and uh, yes i went to harriet lee as as elizabeth found her as well right
He's a man At times he goes astray Seems so unfair But a man is made that way What can I do? What else is there to say? He is a man That's all Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the same time I was going to... Um, to Harriet, she was grooming Lucy Arnaz for Broadway. Mm. Oh wow! In a yeah, in a play called Seesaw, and um, I happened to venture into that songbook as well. But yeah, no, Pat Suzuki actually. My you know, I used to listen to Mahalia Jackson when I was young, and I used to uh, sing along with Edie Gourmet, mm. and from those two. I would select songs to, you know, kind of adopt for my my performances. Well, Pat Suzuki had the same pitch, the same range, the same uh-huh. contralto. Uh-huh. And so that's where I, I I learned from this moment on. Uh-huh. And and I used to incorporate that in my my book, you know, live performances for Dr. Pepper or oh, wherever. Wow. Howdy everybody and welcome. You know, a short time ago, I had the pleasure of introducing a young lady with a tremendous voice. And since that time, she's become one of the nation's new recording stars. And here she is, Miss Ponytail herself, Pat Suzuki. Yeah, um, so I think you mentioned Pat Suzuki because she was on the same label. Right. I can't wait to get the only thing we haven't unpacked are our records, but we're having a record shelf built. So we'll have them by the end of the month. But I, I can't wait to get out my uh, Pat Suzuki and listen again. <laughs> Thinking well, yeah. about you. Thank you. Well, you. vinyl. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You must come and visit me. Um, this is like vinyl heaven over here. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, you'll. Uh, and with the sound that I hear from where you're speaking, the acoustics are going to be insane when you start playing your music and set your speakers up. Oh, the audio guy was here today. The people who lived here before were paving the way. The house is wired. So they're. There's music in every room. It's fantastic. Oh. And they got it all working today. That is wonderful, sweetheart. Oh my gosh! So, and um, aside, from, I mean, do you have an, another like book tour in mind, or or do you have? Uh, well, you know, we're going to be there in in um, California in December, mm-hmm. and so we're doing lunch with Todd at the V Wine Lounge on December 10th. Oh, perfect. With dear James Mortensen. Yes. And then on December 15th, 
I will be reading at Book Soup at 7 p.m. Oh, that's major. Right. That's so, right. Um, you know, we were trying to get, we'll see, there might be something else, but we have those two for sure. Well, excuse me, I was just going to say for, for everyone, when you go on Instagram, and are you also on TikTok? No, just Instagram. Okay, well, I would advise you to go on TikTok because the ads that you put on for promoting the book are so exquisite. I feel oh. like I'm sitting in a miniature theater and the curtains open and, and there's the film, you know, that's, that you're just giving us glimpses of your dear, your dear Elizabeth. Mm. Um, that was really fun to do, right? To take the time to like really think about something more from the film. And um and I found some great little clips of it too. Mm. Fantastic. And and um, now that both David, as we mentioned, had written um, his book, which we spoke about in our a previous episode with both of you, and now you've written your book, do you both have your computers or your typewriters in the same room and you're just sitting there researching <laughs> and writing? Is it a different, what's the process? <laughs> well, you know, it's a new environment <laughs> and we have been so consumed with this kind of, it's a very old house mm. and, you know, just getting it set up the way we wanted, you know, we got, we replaced the appliances and, you know, things break and we had a leak and blah, 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 blah. Mm. But now we're <laughs> just sitting down and, um, you know, finding the room, I think, but we're both writing, which is terrific. And I think it's been very creatively stimulating to be in this new culture and, you know, in this new environment. Yes. And so both of us have a good uh, foothold on, you know, we're into the next thing. So fantastic. And, and just to take us back, where are you? Uh, tell our listeners where you're, um, where you're living now, because in our previous episode, I think both of you were just about to move. Yes. We were living in Palm Springs mm. and um, we moved to Merida in the state of Yucatan in Mexico, which is on the Yucatan Peninsula. So it's on the Gulf of Mexico. It's down like closer to um, Cuba, actually. It's wow. a two-hour flight from Miami. So, um, you know, we, the hurricane missed us. It was supposed to come here. Yeah. Wow. And it's so funny you say that because where you are, the, uh, the, um, we watched uh, The Amazing Race Australia and that's, they were there in mm. a couple of episodes ago. So they've been in Mexico and we saw the exact place you're talking about. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's um, a real convergence here. We keep meeting really interesting people and people are drawn here clearly for, you know, its connections to the beginning the Mayan culture, it's where the mm. asteroid hit the earth 66 million years ago, right? Mm. Which started this age. And um, I don't know, but mm. it's a very, very old city. It's urban, you know, it's like living downtown. Wow, that's interesting, isn't it? So you've got the Mayan, you've probably got the Spanish influence and and as oh, yeah. you said, the cent yeah, just the, the center of kind of the beginning. And and I, I, I think you you raise a really good point. You're saying you're meeting so many interesting people, but I think it's about being open to that. And I think both you and uh, David uh, do that you you bring people together and I think the uh -huh. reason that perhaps you and Elizabeth might have you know might have met random well not randomly but through you like writing a letter but the fact you could form that relationship and you talk about in your book how it wasn't just 
you know, um, you know, you did have disagreements about different things, whether it was politics or things <laughs> like that. But to be right. able to d- develop that friendship over that time, I, I, I think shows what sort of people you are, where you have passions, you have mm. interests, and, and that draws people together, I think. Mm. You're a global citizen. <laughs> I could tell you were talking about me because you were saying such nice things, so I thought I'd join for a second. Hi, David. <laughs> welcome, 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 darling. It was all that flattery that brought me over. Wait. Are you learning the language <laughs> over there? Uh, no, that brought me over to the to the computer to join you. I know, <laughs> like a moth, a moth to the flame, you know. But... <laughs> You know, my skin is pretty good, so um, so I've been flexing that muscle, and it's been really fun to communicate and and uh, bring it back alive. Because when I got here, I was a little bit afraid that I didn't know enough, and I'm doing pretty well. Like I can get through most conversations. What happens is when you express yourself in Spanish and you sound pretty good at it, then they go really fast. <laughs> Then you have, then you're like staring at them, thinking, "I have no idea what just got said." And you just have to slow down. You just have to get rid of your fear and say, "I'm sorry, I didn't understand," and you know, back it up a little. When you've used up all your all your language, and and they, you know, they don't realize yeah. that that's all you've got. <laughs> but I, I think the eye contact, you know, I mean, everyone can kind of associate the depth of your sincerity. You know, with with eye contact and language is is almost superficial. You know, and they feel your heart and they feel your sincerity. So, um, well, yeah. you know, too, the people here are extraordinary, so nice, so um, it, it's a vortex. You know, I really um, want to, you know, kind of in behalf of the message that we're trying to convey with "Love's a Secret Weapon." you know, that each one of us have our own little satellites that were emanating our true love for life and beauty and the planet and all life on the planet. And each little satellite, wherever you are, you know, molecularly, will connect together ultimately and reach that tipping point so that we can all feel that same kind of community of of love and overcome all of these crazy crazy obstacles that we're go- we're going through now i think um uh, you know as you're saying that Donna, i'm just thinking of and i want to ask todd and david this but you know you've you've both made a change recently from you know many years of of work as filmmakers and and now you're, you're both writing you're both releasing books books that are being very well received what advice, if you do have advice for people listening who mm. are thinking of maybe making a big life change but are not quite sure, what what advice or, or what can you give them to to share your experiences? Well, you know, you make a big life change, but also life doesn't change. You're changing. Mm. So, <laughs> but it's funny, you make a leap of faith like that, and we've got three very amazing films now that we're attached to. Mm. None of them are a go yet, but they all could go. And if they did, you know, each and every one is fabulous. And we'd be back doing what we were doing. But um, so I'm glad we made this change, Mm. you know, and I think everyone should. A long time ago, when I lived in the East Village 
there, I bought a T-shirt uh, that said, change is good. And I think, you know, so many people think of change as something to be afraid of and that mm. that's falling apart or that you're going to lose something or whatever it might be. But you know, change is really the is really the way forward in life. Mm. Yeah, and, and may I may I also add that um, change is also uh, felt like the unknown, and someone you know, there's so much uncertainty, and so um, you know when you're when you enter the unknown, and or let's say you you seek a new adventure, um, that that you begin to heighten your awareness and rely on trust. You know, you trust yourself, your inner voice to, that's guiding you to take you where you need to go. And, um, and just keep your heart open. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. And I think you also suddenly have your eyes open in ways that you don't when life is something that you're marching through and that you're used to, you know, mm -hmm. you're now. And as soon as you kind of throw it all, uh, you know, upside down, and do something completely different with yourself. I feel like you you have this opportunity to see anew. And mm -hmm. being who are now sort of trying to do this thing about writing books and writing from yourself, using yourself to write, it's like it's so great to have this world that we're looking at through completely new eyes. It makes mm -hmm. you very mm -hmm. yes, and it's 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 about growth potential because yeah, when when you do get too comfortable. You know, you just kind of stagnate a bit. So we live in the oldest part of the city, the commercial part of the city. So our water pipes are the originals from whenever they put them in. <laughs> right? 1900. I have no idea. But, um, so you really start to appreciate conservation, right? Because we have plenty of water, but it's we don't get it like we used to. And well, and, and you know, darling, my, and... my source of water is rain. Right. <laughs> nice. I like that. But you anyway, you just, it's just nice to go, wow, the American culture is so geared towards, you know, consumerism, waste, excess. Yeah. Yeah. And just in the little things. And when you kind of simplify like this, it is. The real perspective changes. And yes. I agree. You become more observant. Well, also, 24 yeah. 7 access, like the idea that you can just have water anytime you want mm. you know, uh, in your house in the United States. And here we just have to be aware. It's not like there isn't enough, it's just that it comes in from the street into a cistern. And if you use it all, you're you die. Well, we have it. Or if a bus is too tall and goes by and knocks out your power. Okay, that happens. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I tell you, living living on rainwater, you know, I have a rain stick by the door, you know, which um, I, I'm like a crazy woman sometimes, you know, uh, I've only been here in this region for a short time. But, you know, when you, when you really do have to look up and connect with the infinite and connect with the cosmos and, um, and you know, and when that rain comes, and, you know, and you turn the faucet on or you have that water to drink, you know, I have to tell you guys a cute story. Um, my dear Jared had a visit from his son recently who brought 
his eight-year-old daughter with him and um, she fell in love with the rainwater. So she was filling her glass up and drinking it every day. And sure. when it time when it came time for her to go home, um, she filled up two bottles and she thought she was going to take her rainwater with her. And at the airport, they made her spill it out. And oh. she was devastated. So uh, her mom, you know, texts me back and says, you know, Arwen is just heartbroken. So I found a little glass flask and I filled it up with rainwater <laughs> and, and put it in a box with lots of bubble wrap and sent it off to her. And she was so thrilled to get a little bottle of rainwater. That's um, <laughs> very cute. <laughs> <laughs> so like what you're saying materialism all over the world is really shifting back to the essentials absolutely absolutely and and um thinking about this this new life this new excitement and and just reminding our listeners to um check out both of your your books i'm just on on instagram at the moment looking at a um, a review that Donna put me on to um, about Lunch with Elizabeth uh, from Michael Childers, who uh, is a very well-known, iconic person um, in their own right. But he says of your book, uh, let me see, Once upon a time in Hollywood, there were strong, mysterious, smoky screen sirens like Veronica Lake, Gloria Graham, Barbara Stanwyck, Lauren Bacall, and the queen of film noir, Elizabeth Scott, subject of Todd Hughes's glorious new book, an homage to old Hollywood and his friend Miss Scott, a great star who had raucous and witty stories about the industry in her day. For lovers of classic Tinseltown stories and film noir, this book is a must read. Now that must be that must feel pretty good. Hoorah! <laughs> oh yes, from Michael. Are you kidding? That was so also, Michael is so good, right? He gives you the poll quote, like, I must read. I must. <laughs> <laughs> well, Some people know to do that. Everyone in Hollywood. So he's one of those people who, who knows that world. And had he read it and was, you know, sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, bored or angered by it, he would have let us know. Mm. <laughs> so it's a, it's a high compliment for Todd, yes. No, he was so sweet. We were actually on the road and I gave it to him and like three or four days later he called me and just said, I'm I'm like halfway through and I'm loving it. So I thought that was really nice. That's great. Absolutely. They're, they're both, mm, I was just going to say, Donna, they're both page turners, both uh, David's book, 99 Miles from LA, which we spoke about last time and, and the same with, with Todd's book. Um, we, I mean, you can savor them if you want, but I, I kind of got through them really quickly because I wanted to see, see what happened. And David, just to um, uh, bring in your book, how, how is, how is that doing at the moment? Uh, it's done really well. Uh, you know, we ended up uh, on the bestseller list for independent publishers, um, and you know, it's all just a little company that could Pelicanesis, who's put the book out. They put both of our books out. Mm. Uh, and uh, so the way the book industry works these days is that unless you're with the top five publishing entities, it's very hard to get your book out. So it's really about word of mouth and putting in the effort and telling your friends and, you know, et cetera. And so that we were able to, to score at that level was really, really encouraging. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's fun now with a book because different than a movie, 
it's just there for people. I mean, movies are there for people too. You could always go get them on, you know, streaming services, etc. But something about a book and knowing that it's just in certain bookstores and people can hear about it and buy it and, you know, it lives on. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really a great and different feeling. Yeah, and it's the charm of really of that intimacy when, you know, there's no one interpreting for you. It's how, how it makes you feel. And like I said, I have kept, Todd, I have kept your book on my bed with my little bookmarker uh, toward near the end, but it's going to stay there because <laughs> I don't want it to end. <laughs> or you could just flip it over and start again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, it's, it's um, you know, it was amazing because the copy you read too was, I think, mm. I had two more opportunities to uh, make changes. Mm. So I got in some amazing things right at the very end, caught some, you know, bad language and typos. Typos, and typos to the end, and then you still find them in the book. You do. You do. I, I know that one very well. Yes. Well, but, um, not perfect. <laughs> but um, the publisher, I thought, just did such a magnificent job. I just love the pictures and the way they look and uh, the way he laid yeah. it out. Oh, definitely. Well, I love being able to browse through, you know, throughout the book and have photographs and and visuals. So it's it's nice because so many books you they wait till the center and and collect them. And uh, this this way, you're always always given a a visual treat, you know, to see what you're talking about and uh, be reminded who she is. It's funny because. I thought that's what it was going to be was in the center, like, you know, and then on the special paper and insert with photographs, mm -hmm. and color and whatnot. But then um, we were doing a mega spective with Mary Warren up in Palm Springs. Yes. And, um, and the paperback version of her book, Swimming Underground, I was looking at it and they did that kind of thing where there was a full page photo and then the chapter started. I was like, that's really nice. Yeah. So that's, what we modeled it after. I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh, you guys, you don't feel so far away. Um, <laughs> I can no. I can kind of get a waft of the chili peppers from down south. <laughs> it's always such a pleasure to speak to both of you and and you know you're welcome back whenever you want to talk about about something and this is just a very very exciting time I think for both of you and and to remind our listeners to please go and, and check out both of these books that we've spoken about today because you will really enjoy them and you're in for a treat and the 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 energy of love that you both project into your writing uh, just is exact and exactly exactly you know where we're all at so thank you so much Todd and David. Thank you, Dr. Adam. Thank, Thank you, Donald. to Jared Forrest, too. Okay. Lots of hugs and smooches. Love to you. Bye-bye. Adios. Venus must have heard not me. She has sent someone along for me.
you call my 